we're going to see uh, the real healing ministry of Jesus, and we're going to learn some valuable insights into the power, the purpose, and the program of God. It's not always what we might want or expect, but it's always the best thing going. So let's uh, prepare to feed on the Word this morning with some concerted prayer for teachability, and we always like to pray for our troops, our peace officers, our firefighters. Uh, I know David's got some of the kids in the back getting them ready, but uh, the Moors have been sick on and off for like three weeks. Harmony, Harmony's been sick this week, and so it takes a lot of gumption for David, the guy right in the center of that to collage, David Moore, to be able to be here. And I see Matt Sanford's parents. You guys are practically uh, associate members of a church that doesn't have formal membership, but... Uh, it's always nice to see you guys. Thanks for being here this morning. And uh, we had a lot of heroes of the week this week, especially revolving around the a little home there, I think, uh, the yard sale, which is really a bus barn sale. And uh, Lloyd and Katie did a lot of work. Nicole did a lot of work. Uh, but Ron kind of kept an eye on everybody and kept uh, hopefully... Uh, minor theft to a minimum with the customers and stuff. So I'm going to ask you please to lead us in prayer. Thank you, Ron. Let me remind you one more time, this Wednesday is a special Wow Wednesday because Wow Wednesdays really are supposed to be during months that have five Wednesdays, but we technically don't have a fifth Wednesday in April, but we wanted to do a a focus on Puebla, and Puebla, Mexico is almost exactly due south of here, about 900 miles. It's about 80 miles southeast of Mexico City. I'd never heard of Puebla, Mexico until 1991, a few months before I went there the first time, because it's kind of in the shadow of Mexico City, which is such a huge city and the capital of the nation, as you know. There's a a live volcano roughly halfway between Mexico City and Puebla. It's called Popocatepet, or Popo for short. And uh, when we arrived in Probably the first time I was amazed to find this beautiful little jewel of a, and it's not little, several million people in the greater Puebla area, but it seems small compared to Mexico City. And we've gone, by God's grace, uh, almost every year since 1991. We've been blessed to have a wonderful working relationship with Pastor Tomas Yanez and his amazing wife, Carmen, uh, and many I see Sue, she's been down there several times. Max has been down there. Gene's been down there. Sonia's been down there. Uh, Debbie Corbin, Dale's been down there. A bunch of people have been down there once or twice. And uh, if God's putting a little catch in your spirit, you might want to look at uh, accompanying us this year. We'd be glad to talk to you about it. You don't have to speak Spanish, but uh, and we've never lost anybody yet. And you hear a lot of bad publicity about Mexico, but um, through the present, Pueblo's been kind of a nice cultural oasis. It's kind of out of the public eye, and it's, uh, we've never had any problems uh, with any kind of crime or anything like that. We'll be uh, ministering uh, with Tomas at his Baptist church, Iglesia Baptista Jerusalén, which translated is, a rough translation, is Jerusalem Baptist Church. And I would have thought we were looking at Jerusalem Baptist Church in Acts 3, but in fact, it's in Mexico. Okay. Uh, instead of a top seven list to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking today, I want to do something I wasn't able to do on Easter Sunday. 
But uh, I also want to remind you about this memory aid we have to help us remember the 28 chapters in Acts. And on and off, you'll get a bulletin insert like that. I know you didn't get it this week, but that's okay. We'll go over the first uh, part of that. But if you can remember the statement, Jesus is alive as head of his bride, 28 letters, and they all line up with the uh, chapters in Acts. But uh, looking at the empty tomb, I didn't do this on Easter because uh, I just decided not to. But my favorite biblical joke is the evening after the horrors of the crucifixion, as you know, Joseph of Arimathea, a big shot in Judaism, had donated his brand new $100,000 tomb for Jesus' body. And uh, just as sun was setting and as Joseph left the the area to go into town to get ready for Passover. One of his big shot friends said, I can't believe, Joseph, I can't believe you've given this expensive, fancy, brand new tomb to this penniless Galilean troublemaker. Why would you do that? And Joseph said, well, uh, he's different than you think. I don't think you understand him. Plus, he's only going to need it for three days. So, I love that joke. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. We'll look at the first uh, word there, Jesus. They summarize the first five chapters. We're going to look at chapter 3 and part of chapter 4 this morning. Uh, J stands for Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. The death of Christ, three days later the resurrection of Christ, 40 days after that the ascension of Christ, 10 days after that Pentecost, events of chapter 2. What happens is Chapter 2, the establishment of the New Testament church. Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church are not the same thing. The New Testament church has not replaced Israel in God's program, but we do have a unique uh, perspective on God's program, having looking, being able to look back on the cross. Old Testament Israel is looking forward to the promises of the cross. Chapter 3, we'll look at today in a little detail, salvation of a lame beggar at the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. Chapter 4, and we'll touch on that today also, unleashing a formal persecution against the church and then sin in the church. So how would you summarize the first five chapters of the book of Acts, Joe? If somebody came up and say, somebody, I hope this never happens, but some mugger walked up to you and says, I don't want your money. I want you to summarize the first five chapters of the book of Acts. Could happen. What would you say for chapter 1? Jesus ascends to heaven. What does E stand for? Establishment of the New Testament church with signs and wonders and really unique events. Chapter 3, salvation of a lame beggar, unleashing a persecution, and then sin in the church. Our passage this morning breaks down into three parts. We've got the miracle itself, the salvation of the lame beggar, a message Peter preaches to the assembled multitude in the temple courtyard, and then the momentum, positive and negative, that spin out of that. Uh, the miracle, verses 1 through 10. The apostle Peter and John free a man by Jesus' power from physical paralysis in Jesus' name. Look at verses 1 through 3, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now, you got to stop. What does now mean? Go back to verse 42 and 43. We had the ascension of Christ in chapter 1, 10 days later the establishment of the church, And in the aftermath of the establishment of the church, the first local church is functioning in Jerusalem. The apostles are the staff 
The Great Commission is ringing in their ears that Jesus told them to do. And what did they focus on in that first church? The kind of stuff that every church should focus on. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, koinonia, interaction between believers that's mutually edifying, to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and other forms of worship, and to prayer. And guess what? All kinds of good things were happening in the church, not just on Sunday when they meet, but the church made up of believers all over town. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, like we're really at the beginning of the creation of a new part of God's program. And many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. That's a general statement. Now chapter 3 is going to give you a specific example of signs and wonders through the apostles. I'm not an apostle. Joel Olstein isn't an apostle. Anybody who claims to be a capital A apostle is kidding himself or you. We don't have that kind of power, that kind of experience, or those kind of prerogatives. All we can do is what God calls us to do. But now the apostles, Peter and John, were going up to the temple at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was customary for Jewish men, if they could, when they were in Jerusalem at the time, to go into the court of the men and pray in the morning at the time of the morning sacrifice in the middle of the afternoon during the middle of the afternoon sacrifice, two sacrifices that pictured prayer. So they're continuing, notice this, Michael, to function within the structure of Judaism as they know it at that point, um, because that makes sense. Um, and that's the hour of prayer, the second of two daily hours of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb, we know from uh, verse 22 of chapter 4, uh, Ashley, this guy's 40 years old. That means he's been lame for 40 years. You could take Riley who's an, an amazing athlete. He didn't like to brag, but this guy, you saw him at the Valentine Banquet. What was that stuff where you're jumping through the air and all that, and that's good. That was pretty amazing stuff. Football player, swimmer. We could put you in a hospital bed for 10 months and not let you get out, and you wouldn't be able to walk. It would take you a while to learn how to walk again. This guy has never been able to walk, and he's been in that condition for 40 years. So what do you know about his leg muscles? There's not much there. This is a hopeless case from uh, a human point of view. A man who had been lame from his mother's womb uh, was being carried along to his place. If you go and visit my son in Edmond right there at Penn, Pennsylvania in Kirkpatrick, uh, uh, what do they call it, Turnpike, uh, there are guys with, uh, they have a Mercedes in the parking lot from a golf smith, but they hold these signs up and they want you to give them money. That's kind of what this guy's job was, except he's more legit. Uh, and he's been carrying along, and his friends used to set him down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg for money, for alms means money, uh, of those entering the temple. He figured, hey, they're in a good mood. They're coming to pray. If I can ever kind of twist their arm to give me some money, now's the time. Um, and uh, it's funny, my sister, who uh, Peggy, who has a lot of biblical insights. When she drives around, she's my mother's kind of designated driver because my mother can't drive anymore because of her eyesight. And my mother said, you know what happens when you go to Beaumont and you go to that one corner near the mall where the guy's holding the sign up? You know what Peggy does? She pulls up and she goes, Mom, give me a five. I'll say that again. My sister who's driving, my mother's here, and here's the guy with the signboard who's probably not legit. Hey, Mom, give me a five. She's very generous with my mom's money. But she's got a big heart, okay? When he saw Peter and John, 
he didn't necessarily know who they were. There's two guys coming in to pray, but they look like good prospects. About to go into the temple area proper, he began asking to receive alms. He, he knows what he wants, and he's just asking for it. you got to admire that. Okay, this is a, a drawing of the temple as it stood in Jerusalem until 70 A.D., and we're in 33 A.D. here. What happened in 70 A.D.? The Romans destroyed it. Not one stone was left among the other stones. The main way in, interesting, this whole platform, this, they call it a platform, but it's multi-acres of uh, space, had a big wall around it, and this was called the Temple Mount. Uh, the main way in for most people, non-priests, was through the southern. This is south, and that's uh, west, and that's east, and that's north. The main way in was through these uh, the staircase here, and through those doors there. Uh, sometimes you'll read, uh, Jesus was in the temple, or somebody, Anna and Simeon were in the temple every day. And we tend to think of the temple as the building, and you can call the building proper where the priests did their things the temple. They can also use, and the Greek actually has a different term, for anything within the enclosure here. It's called the temple. So when you go up those steps and walk in there, uh, you're in the temple, and yet, uh, it gets a little bit more complicated than that. But I want you to notice, from, just from the standpoint of what you can see now, these steps to the south and this wall over here. Now notice, it says Western Wall. Uh, most Americans call it the Wailing Wall because of the tears of joy when in 67 it was liberated from Palestinian ruffians and uh, bad people. But uh, not that all Palestinians are bad people. Dr. Uh, Ahmad uh, Shahada is one of my best friends. He's a Palestinian. But uh, the Palestinians roughing up and keeping the Jews out of Jerusalem at the time were not nice people. Uh, when's the last time we had a Methodist suicide bomber, by the way? Doesn't happen, does it? Uh, but anyway, you see the Western Wall there. Boom. What's the big deal about the Western Wall? Well, this is a shot, helicopter shot, that Homer Cox very kindly took when he Rented that helicopter, I would say that. Uh, he didn't really run it. But that's a, that's a shot of what it looks like today. Now, that's not the Jewish temple. That's the Dome of the Rock. Uh, Muhammad, as you know, lived from 570 to 632 A.D. By 700, 70 years, 68 years after he was dead, the Muslim missionary military had conquered a lot of North Africa, all of Palestine and, and Canaan and Israel, and had built that. It's not a mosque. There's a, mouse, there's a mosque south of that on the Temple Mount called the Alaska Mosque. That's uh, the Dome of the Rock, which commemorates the victory of Islam over Judaism and Christianity. That's what that is. But, you know, that's what it is. So today, if you go to the Western Wall, Jared, that's what you're going to... Oops. That's what you're going to see right there. Now, what is that? That, Blaine, is that. That's a drawing of the temple area in Acts 3, during the life of Jesus and the apostles. And you see that arrow there? That, is that red or orange? I'm radioactive because I'm only moving this thing and it's advancing the slides. But yeah, that, Steve, is that. So that's a tangible artifact, physical uh, part of the, the Temple Mount in, in Jesus' day in Acts 3. Uh, that's what it looks like today. I took that picture. You can see how tall it is compared if you assume these people. See, if we were Americans, I'm going to be very ethnocentric here, right? 
we were all Americans, we'd say those guys are six feet tall, but they're all kind of Jews, so they're all like five foot tall. But the point is, it's a real tall wall, and a lot of it goes down below the surface. So this was a huge wall around the Temple Mount. And uh, that's Tom Robertson. That's our friend from West Virginia. That's an unknown Hasidic Jew. That's Jamie. That's a less observant Jew who sits there all day and takes notes and draws pictures, and that's me. Uh, you have to have your head covered in reverence to God. And the first time I was in Jerusalem in 99, I had my ball cap on, the tour on, but I noticed non-Jews who didn't have a yarmulke uh, were getting in line to get a paper yarmulke. So I took my hat off and got in line for the paper yarmulke. When I finally got to the guy handing out the paper yarmulkes, he looked at my cap and he said, that's, that's better. He pointed at my baseball cap probably because it covered more of my the glare off of my head. But yeah, so I, but this is the third time I've been there, so I knew just to keep my ball cap on, but to get your head against it, um, you turn it around. The Jews have a joke that says, uh, when you pray to God anywhere in the world, it's a long-distance call, but when you pray to God from the Western Wall, it's a local call. Now, you and I know that God doesn't hear prayer any better when you've got your head against the Western Wall, but it's a pretty amazing thing to do and in the cracks people prayer requests and it's not like god's going to say oh i wasn't going to answer that but you put it in the western wall so now i have to but it's an amazing experience to be there now let's go back to the the steps here that was the main way in it's just been in the last 10 years they've allowed tourists to actually see walk on and sit on places where jesus walked and there is asher our former Israeli paratrooper guide, and there's Jamie, and there are part of those steps that have been excavated, and there's my family before the six grandkids got here. We're just going to take over the world here, watch out, sitting where Jesus walked. Now, the beautiful gate, there was a, a gate that went directly outside of the city due east of the temple entrance, uh, and there was a gate there called the Golden Gate, and some people assume that's the beautiful gate, probably not. But the enclosure here, and again, if I, have my do, I don't have my doodad to point to it, but anyway, basically, the beautiful gate is right here, and it's the main way in. You had a woman's court that was also where the treasury, where you could put your money in, and you had the uh, court of the men inside of that, and then you had the actual temple uh, dynamics that only the priest could go into. So the point is, this guy deployed himself right there, and it's the only way in to the temple complex proper, so he's got a good uh, place to, to try to ask for money and stuff like that. Let's pick it up in verse 4. So he's there, and he began, and that's imperfect in the Greek, which means he kept on asking. He didn't just say it once. He said it several times. He he. Uh, wanted to get their attention. He wouldn't let them not notice him. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on this man and said, look at us. Don't just treat us as another opportunity to get some coins. Look at us. Let's interact at a personal level. And he, the lame man, began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. What was he expecting to receive? Hey, Mom, give me a five, you know, probably some coins in that situation, right? But Peter said... I do not possess silver and gold. I don't think he's necessarily saying I never have any walking around money. I know they're pooling their supplies, like we said last week, and living out of that. But I would—I don't think the Bible saying you can't have a wallet or can't have a purse, can't have money in it. 
this describes what happened that day, doesn't prescribe it. But the point is, I don't have any money on me, but what I do have, I'll give to you. And he's an apostle with the ability to heal within God's will whenever he wants to. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. This guy had never, and he, I'm surprised the guy said, I don't know how. <laughs> I'm 40 and I've never even had a shot at this. You know, I'm not sure I can do it. Uh, this is clearly a sign and wonder. It's a miracle. It's a good place for it. Where are we, where are we here? What's the setting? Are we in Cleveland? We're, we're outside the temple in Jerusalem. Okay. The whole nation is teetering. What are they going to do with Jesus now? That these maniacs are saying he was resurrected. You know, we, we know what they did to him prior to that. What are they going to do now? What are the leaders going to do now? You think the leaders who know scripture would have connected some dots with Isaiah 53, maybe? Not, not so, but, uh, God's giving more than enough information. So if we don't get it, it's our fault. And he says, I don't have any money on me, man. And that's not only going to help you for a day or two, but here's what I can do in the name of Jesus Christ. The Nazarene walk and seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately this guy can stand on his own two feet and not just walk, but with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk and entered the temple, went through the beautiful gate in the court of the women and then the court of the men, uh, walking, leaping and praising God. Well, I guess so. He's got a lot to be happy about. And all the people, just the other people, hundreds and thousands of people just there, for the time of prayer, saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him. He's the guy for the last, when do you start your job as a beggar? You, I mean, in Pueblo, you'll we'll, we'll pass some folks, little kids, and it breaks your heart, but I've been told those little kids are being forced to do this, and that bad things happen to them before, during, and after quite often anyway, so giving them money doesn't really help. But uh, let's say he started at age 10, so he's been doing this for 30 years, which tells you something else. Was Jesus ever at the temple in Jerusalem? Please say yes. Where do you think he's going to go? To the Dome of the Rock? It's not there, you know? Uh, yeah, he was in and out of there at least three, probably four times a year. We know he would have been there in uh, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. We know in John 10 he's there for Hanukkah. So you got Jesus who lives in the north of Israel, comes to the south and goes to Jerusalem several times a year, probably at least four times a year, and he would have been in and out of the gate beautiful. Listen, God's will is not just a what. It's a when and a how. It wasn't the right when. Jesus had seen this guy. Jesus, for his purposes, didn't heal him, but waited for this opportunity for the apostles to say, we got the same, we're working for the same Jesus that you saw. We have, as apostles, some of the same prerogatives he had. So they were taking note. This is the guy who's been begging for the last 30 years uh, at the gate beautiful of the temple, and they were filled, just the bystanders, were, with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Look back at verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, not just in the church, but even in the community. People could tell something unique was happening here. Now, let me read a little bit, and I, I know it's bad form to read something in front of a group of people. There's a couple paragraphs, so bear with me. But I want to read something about this miracle and the way God works miracles biblically from um, soniclight.com, which is Dr. Tom Constable's website. And uh, 
I can never, and I'll never forget the first time I happened to preach through John 9 when Bill Shelton would have been sitting right where Matt's mother was. And I'm looking at this World War II hero who had lost one eye in combat and the other eye got infected with TB uh, germ in the German POW camp and he slowly went blind over a period of 20 or 30 years. And we got a blind guy, one of my best friends, sitting in the congregation, and we're talking about a narrative where Jesus heals a blind guy. And I'm thinking, he's got to be wondering, if Jesus did that, what am I, chopped liver? You know, I mean, why not do that? And he never had that attitude that I knew of, but I thought, how can you not wonder about that? So let's say a little bit about that. And also, there are people on cable TV who claim to have the gift of healing, and if you send them enough money, they'll pray for your grandma and, you know, she, she'll be able to walk again and stuff like that. And they, and they read cards about these things happening that they never actually verify. And hey, I'm a non-charismatic who believes in miracles. I pray for miracles. I've seen miracles, but I don't get all the miracles I pray for. I don't believe God gives anybody the gift of healing the way he gave the apostles the gift of healing. I do think God is a healer. I also think the ultimate healing is absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord. But let's just think about some of those issues, and I think it will be more efficient for me to let Dr. Constable organize it because I would get off the track probably. He says, the gift of healing as it functioned in the apostolic church, like here in Acts 3, was quite different from the so-called gift of healing some charismatics claim to possess today. Examples of people using this gift, the gift of healing, generally the apostles or a few people closely associated with the apostles uh, in the New Testament, seem to indicate the person with this gift could heal anyone, subject, of course, to God's will. Jesus Christ gave this gift to the early church to confirm the witness of the apostles about him. And he gave it primarily for the benefit of Jewish observers, and then Constable puts 1 Corinthians one Let's look at 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. So go back toward the back of your Bible, a couple of books, and right after Romans, you'll see 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, and he cites verse 22, but I want to read a couple more than just that. So 1 Corinthians 1, I'm thinking about, I don't doubt this happened, I have no doubt it happened, but I don't think this is saying that uh, this is the kind of thing prerogative God gives every generation of the church to have this kind of gift. Can God heal in response to prayer? Yeah. Supernaturally, supernormally, or both? Yeah. And I've seen it happen, but I can't just walk up to anybody I want to and say, in the name of Jesus, you're healed, and get healed. Because if I could, I would have healed a lot of people. You know. And, and the first thing I would have done is repair my hairline and my glasses. A lot of these uh, faith healers wear glasses, man. How does that work? I mean, nobody connects the dots on this stuff. So he cites uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So getting baptized isn't the gospel. It's an expression of your faith in the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so the cross of Christ would not be made void. And then drop down to verse the next verse, verse 18. We'll read through verse uh, 24. For the word of the cross that Jesus died for us so we could have our sins forgiven and have eternal life through him, is foolishness to those who are perishing, especially in our postmodern culture today. 
It's the only thing you can't believe. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Drop down to verse 20. Where is the wise man who's going to critique God's program, his purpose in this? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God's wisdom trumps everybody else's wisdom. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Uh, Worldly uh, wisdom is work your way to heaven by being a good person, and that can't work. And if it could have worked, God wouldn't send his son to die for our sins if we could work our way up ourselves. God was well pleased through the foolishness, quote-unquote, of the message preached the gospel to save those who believe. For indeed, here's the verse that Constable cites on his website, Jews ask for signs because in the two previous two-generation periods, Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, when God was changing aspects of the program, he gave them lots of signs. So if you're the Messiah, you've got to show us signs. And at your immediate followers, you'd have signs. And he's given them signs. The healing of this guy's been lame for 40 years. And you can't reproduce that at the Mayo Clinic or anywhere else. In Greeks, search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, a crucified Messiah? What's that? Uh, to Gentiles, foolishness, they don't believe in resurrection or life after death. But to those who are being, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Uh, go back to Acts chapter 3. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, right? So we've got the miracle here. Um, let, let me finish the Constable's comment here real quickly, and then we'll move on. He says, This incident, this healing in Acts 3, and other miracles recorded in Acts, have led readers... Uh, to wonder if God is still working miracles today. And Dr. Constable says, of course he is. God can and does perform miracles of healing and other kind of miracles whenever and wherever he chooses. And by the way, regeneration, you actually giving, being given eternal life to Jesus Christ, is one of the greatest of God's miracles. But perhaps a better question would be, does God still give the gift of working miracles to believers today as he gave this ability to Peter, Paul, and John, and the other first century apostles. Uh, he says, no, he did not. And then he talks about the three major phases of new biblical revelation, Moses and Joshua, two generations there, Elijah and Elisha, Christ and the apostles. That's when he uh, puts his authentication of those speakers with these kind of very unique miracles. And I always... I've prayed for a lot of you before you get surgeries, and every single time, it's kind of like, he prays the same prayer every time before I have a surgery. Lord, and I, some people, I've heard some lay people, Lord, please let Dr. Giles have a good day today. I mean, I, he's been so busy. He's so stressed. Please don't let his hand slip. Of course we don't want Giles' hand to slip, and we want him to replace your left hip if that's the hip, not the right hip. I, I do pray the doctors have a good day. Of course. We want that. But I always pray that, God, if it be your will, you work over and above what the doc can do, over and above what the nurses can do, okay? And I always pray that. And sometimes we've gotten phenomenal things, and sometimes it just doesn't happen, but we believe that God knows what he's doing. And the universe runs according to his schedule and according to his program, not mine. Let's move from the miracle to the message. God spiritually frees all who believe from spiritual paralysis in the name of Jesus. Look at verse uh, 11 and 12. 
while he, the formerly lame guy, was no doubt in incredible gratitude, clinging to Peter and John. He just wouldn't let them go. All the people, just the average people, guy in the street there, ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? They're looking at Peter and John like, these guys have something special. And he's saying, it's not about us. Now, the the uh, portico or the porch of Solomon was what this particular portion of the inside part of the wall was called. So they were right about here or just outside of there when the miracle took place. So they go in the shade. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon in Israel. You don't want to stand in the hot sun, okay? You get sunstroke. You get sunburn. You don't want to do that. Uh as a melanoma survivor, I can tell you, one major sunburn uh, can set you up for that to happen later, so don't do that. I grew up in Miami, Florida. I had sunburns all the time. They said, don't worry about it. You know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. But that's what they tell me. That was wrong. But that's, that's, where, it's, and, and that's where it's happening, okay? Look at verse 13. I love this. Look at verse 13 through 15. Peter's got a crowd. What's he going to do? He's going to tell them about the risen Christ, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You always start where your audience is. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant. The servant of the Lord is talked about in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 53. Whole chapters, Clay, talk about the Messiah is going to be the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. He's saying Jesus was that prophesied messianic servant. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, has glorified his servant Jesus the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, the Roman procurator who had to check off on the execution, uh, when he had decided to release him. Remember? You want Barabbas or you want Jesus? They'd been bribed to pick Barabbas, the, the felon, the murderer. But you disowned the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you and put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. In fact, to which we are all witnesses. Wow. I notice he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who cares about that? That's Old Testament. Well, go back to verse 20. Go down to verse 25. Same passage. As he begins to wind down, he says, it is to you who are the sons of the Old Testament prophets and the sons, the ones connected with the covenant the contract which God made with your father saying to Abraham in Genesis 12, in your seed, in your progeny, ultimately the Messiah Jesus, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, when you look at biblical history, the whole thing revolves around a certain set of promises God gives to Abraham who he found in Iraq and moved to Canaan. And he gives him all these promises about a land, a seed, and a blessing. And the core promise is that the Messiah is going to be a Jew, and he's going to be the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of the Jews. And so you've got that as a foundation, these foundational covenant promises given to Abraham for the whole human race. Uh, in the run-up 2,000 years later, Abraham lived in about 2,000 B.C., 
to the actual appearance of the Messiah as the Lamb, you've got another covenant. The first one was a covenant of, of grace, and the second one was in this form of a 15th century, watch this, Susan Rebassel Treaty. I know that David knows about all of that. Uh, that God entered into a particular unique connection with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the purpose of bringing Messiah to the world and being a blessing in the basis of salvation of the world. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, we don't live under the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. We live under the New Covenant. Jesus talks about that at the Last Supper. He says, my blood is going to ratify, going to sign that New Covenant contract. We don't have one nation that's the light. We've got a multinational, multicultural, multicolor uh, New Testament church that carries the, the water and the message until Messiah comes back, not as a lamb, but as a lion. So Peter is aware of all that kind of stuff, and these people would have been too. We, as New Testament Christians, a lot of times don't, we're clueless about stuff like that. They're saying this all fits into the plan. It was thousands of years, but God was always right on schedule. Look at verse uh, 16. And it's on the basis of faith in His, Jesus' name, the one disowned by the nation, resurrected by God. It's on the basis of the name of Jesus. It's uh, it's the basis of of His program that He strengthened this man whom you see and know. There's no doubt this happened. And the faith which comes through Him has given Him, this lame guy, this perfect health in the presence of you all. And, of course, in Oklahoma, we'd say all y'all. And now, brethren... I know that you acted in ignorance, just as the rulers did also. We're giving you a divine reboot. And after the fact, we're going to let you look back at this again and connect the dots, hopefully, and some of them do. But the things which God announced beforehand in the Old Testament about the Messiah, by the mouth of prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he's fulfilled. Look at it. Read Isaiah 53. Read Psalm 22. Think about the Passover. Think about the Day of Atonement. It's all about sacrifice to pay for sin. That's what he did. Therefore, repent. Metanaeo is the verb. We've seen that before. And return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive or retain or uh, he must reside there visibly until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke Millennial promises end times by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Look at verse 22. Moses said in Deuteronomy, the Lord God will raise up for you, Israel, and ultimately for the world, a prophet like me, only greater, from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says, and if you don't, you've had it. He's the issue and the issue of eternal life. Now, notice what does he say in 3.19. He's calling his people to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He talks about faith in verse 16, but then he commands them to repent. And a lot of times we think that repentance is feeling sorry for your sin. That's contrition. I don't think anybody comes to faith without feeling sorry for their sins, but it's not a level of contrition that is the deal. It's active faith in Christ. We saw this a couple weeks ago. The specific New Testament term for repent it's not metamelamai, feeling sorry for something, but metanaeo. Meta means to change. Metamorphosis. What's that? Cocoon into what? Butterfly. Noose. In Greek, the word noose 
means to think. Change the way you think. And saving repentance and saving faith are the same thing described different ways. To repent savingly means to change your mind about your sin. You got it. Don't redefine it or rationalize it. Yourself, you can't fix it. No band-aid you're going to put on it is going to help. And your Savior is the only one who can. That's one way of saying believe. Believe is, and by the way, let's just go ahead and do this. We saw this before in Acts 2.38. Peter says, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. But he uses metanoeo, change your mind about your sin, self, and your Savior. Then a few verses later when Acts uh, and Luke in Acts describes the people who repented, what does he say? All those who believed the command to repent were believers in the church and they're good. Here in Acts 3.19, he tells them to repent. Metanaeo, change your mind about your sin, you got it. Yourself, you can't fix it. The Savior, he's the only one who can. Look what's going to happen in verse 4, talking about these people who were told to repent. Those who heard the message, what? Believe. Want you to repent. Gene, don't stay over there. That's repent. Gene, come over here. That's believe. Or I could say, hey, don't come, don't stay over there. Come over here. I could put them back together, but you're just doing one thing. You can't come over here without leaving there. If you leave there and come in my direction, you come in my direction. Same kind of thing. Uh, Peter's going to say everyone who believes in Christ receives forgiveness of sins. The next chapter says, hey, what do you know? Those people that believed did express the repentance that leads to life. Here's Paul. Paul says, God is saying that all people everywhere should repent. Change your mind about their sin, self, and Savior. Look at this. Just, what, four verses later, some men joined him, and what did they do? What did he tell them to do? Tell them to repent. Luke says they repented. I mean, they believed. They left there and came over here. Okay? Carolyn, you can't believe in Christ without changing your mind about your sins, self, and your Savior. And if you do that, you are believing by definition. Uh, Paul's talking about John the Baptist's ministry in Acts 19. He says, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to what? To believe. Those are two different ways of saying the same thing. You can't have one with the other, at the other. You go back to the Gospels and look at John's ministry. Mark describes it uh, as a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. So what do we do with that? You have to be baptized for forgiveness of sins? No, forgiveness of sins is connected to repentance. Okay. You make your vows at a wedding ceremony, and then you put this on. Okay? This is my third wedding ring, but I've only had one wife. I've lost two wedding rings on golf courses. She knows. But uh, I can take this off. I'm still married, right? Uh, Riley could put this on, and he's not married to Debbie or to me or anybody else. And you can actually do that nowadays. So just, don't, don't do it. But uh, And we went into that in some detail a couple weeks ago, but that's that's what the deal is. And again, he tells them to change their mind about their sin, their self, and their Savior. And in 4.4, many of those who heard the message believed. So let's just define terms the way the Bible does, and we'll eliminate a lot of problems, okay? And what Peter is doing here is not promoting his ministry or even the church, trying to get more people in the church. He's promoting the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that's what the gospel is all about. It's not about a denomination or a preacher or seminary is about who Jesus Christ is and what he did. 
He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And whosoever will may come. No one's so bad they can't have this. No one's so good they don't need it because Christ died for our sins. The good news is we don't have to die in our sins. And he's not dead anymore. And that's critical, David, because a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one's the only one who can. All right, we've seen the miracle, the message. Now let's look at the momentum. And it's not just positive, unfortunately. It's also some negative momentum here. The church in Jerusalem continues to grow in the name of Jesus. However, we've got the rise of opposition and persecution. And that's a seed that's going to only get worse and worse throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Look at verse 1. And you know what? I didn't, I didn't go all the way down, did I? Um, look at verse 24 through 26 just so we can tie up the, the, uh, the bow there on the, uh, the message. And likewise, all the prophets in the Old Testament from Samuel and his successors onward have announced these days, have talked about the coming of the Messiah. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant built on the Abrahamic covenant, uh, which God made with your father, saying to Abraham at the very beginning in Genesis 12, and in your seed, ultimately Jesus, all the families of the world will be blessed. But you first, but to you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from his wicked ways. Now let's talk about the momentum as they were speaking to people. Now, didn't anybody teach you? It's Didn't your mommy teach you it's bad to interrupt? It's bad manners to interrupt people. Here Peter is just getting to the good part of his message. And as they, and I think John's speaking probably too, uh, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, they were the religious liberals who controlled the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious court, came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. Why would that be a big problem for Sadducees, Sue? Theologically, they don't believe in a resurrection. But more importantly, these guys seem to be pinning the death of Jesus on the Jewish establishment. Uh, The New Testament is not anti-Semitic, but it does differ greatly with certain Jewish leaders that rejected categorically Jesus and uh, set in motion the uh, the rejection of him. Verse 3, watch this. Now listen, we start at 3 in the afternoon. It's probably 4.30. And we all know that the uh, the offices close at 5, right? Whether you got stuff to do or not. That's the way government works, you know. Uh, so they laid hands on them, Peter and John, and put them in jail, but they can't process anything. Uh, they're going to have to spend the night in jail at a minimum because it's already evening. You know, it's 5 o'clock or just about. Back then they had a sundial, you know, so they went, eh, close enough. They rounded it up. Once you hit 430, you rounded up to 5, and he just went home, you know. But uh, many who had heard the message, and what did Peter tell them to do? To repent. Luke's reporting to you. Many of those in the temple courtyard who heard the message that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and they needed to repent, they believed. And the number of the men associated with the church came to be 5,000. Speaking truth to power is never popular. It leads to insult, marginalization. And I think uh, I I heard Dennis Prather, who's a very wise uh, Jewish individual who's got a national radio show that's 
conservative and it's good. I like it. And I heard him interviewed yesterday and he said, in America, evangelical Christians are becoming the Jews of America. And this was a Jewish guy who's not a believer in Christ, doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. He said, you guys, he's talking to an evangelical interviewer, you guys are the Jews of America. He said, think about it. The world hates the Jews. Why? Because we're virtuous. We try to do the right thing. We're not perfect, but we're trying to inject some positivity in the thing. And then we've been you know, marginalized and hated. He says, that's where you guys are. And I went, ooh, that's true, I think. Uh, Kissinger used to say, just because I had, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean I don't have real enemies. And so I think most, most people in the ministry have a persecution complex at some point. I'm just telling you. And so I, I tend to see all kinds of stuff that maybe isn't there, but it's, it's getting, it's getting bad out there as the, the culture, uh, redefines everything that matters and is leaving us out. And since we beg to differ in tolerance, they just can't handle that. Uh, when, uh, when the Judeo-Christian mindset that believes in true tolerance was kind of the norm, we allowed all kinds of people, just give us a level playing field, they said. And because we believe in tolerance, we let them do that. Once they're getting their hands on the lever, since tolerance, true tolerance, isn't a value for them, but just power is, they're going to use the freedom we've given them under the First Amendment, the way what it means to allow them to get their hands on the power. And once they get it fully, they're not going to apply any tolerance toward us. It, it's it's coming. And uh, I hate to be a prophet of doom. I'm, I know you come to church to get cheered up, don't you? Well, well, you know, it's uh, the trends are not good. That's just my opinion. We'll see. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, the word anthropos means person in Greek, but the word aner, we get androgen, the male hormone from that. Uh, that's the term that's used here in verse 4. And we saw the 120 before Pentecost were men and women. And we were told that 3,000 people came to faith in Peter's sermon at the end of chapter 2. That's men and women and little boys and little girls probably here. But here he's saying there are about 5,000 males now associated with the Christian church in Jerusalem, plus wives and kids. So this thing is exponentially growing, but we've got the first formal persecution, and we're going to see the rest of the story next week as we'll see Peter speak to to the Jewish authorities, and we'll see what happens there. But let me just end this way. Jesus Christ is building his church, capital C church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, but the gates of Hades will oppose it. He didn't say the gates of Hades will not oppose it. He said the gates of Hades will not prevail, ultimately, which means we're going to lose some battles, but we win the war. Okay, And let me finish with this. We're talking about physical healing. Praise God, this is a wonderful humanitarian thing that, that Peter did. But more importantly, it's a very telling sign to the Jews in Jerusalem and especially to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And what do they do with it? They try to stamp it out. They try to ignore it. They try to tell the guys, don't talk about this. Forget it. It's irrefutable, but that's the reaction. But don't read this as if uh, if you have enough faith, anything you say has to happen. God is not working on your schedule or for your program. We're working on his schedule and for his program. Physical healing has a place in God's program. I've seen a lot of people get healed uh, normally, supranormally, or supernaturally in 30-plus years as a pastor. 
But I can tell you for sure, uh, however God's will is for our healing physically for a particular issue we're dealing with, uh, all physical healing is trumped by the spiritual eternal healing that is in fact available through Jesus Christ, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. Father, help us not to be paranoid and not to be uh, mean or evil or cruel in facing those who oppose the truth, but help us to be realistic about the, the fact that in the same way just preaching the resurrection Jesus was seen to be an arrestable offense, a criminal act, that more and more so many of the things that we hold sacred and that are clearly the truth are being denied or redefined uh, and it seems like uh, evil is held up as good and good is held up as evil. And eventually we're going to hit a tipping point where we're going to have to be uh, re-educated or dealt with in some very uh, harsh ways for our regressive thinking, which is actually uh, the truth. So I pray you would steal, especially this younger generation, somebody like Blaine, smart guy, going to uh, go out and do some great things in the world. Let him realize that uh, you will empower him so he doesn't have to compromise his biblical standards to do what you want him to do. I also want to praise you, Father, for your healing power. We've seen a lot of people uh, be healed of all kinds of chronic and serious and acute situations. We also know sometimes we pray for a miracle and it just doesn't happen. Uh, I'm sure this man probably saw Jesus many times walk by, maybe tried to get his attention, but that wasn't the time. The Lord knew about this guy, but it's going to be Peter's time. It's going to be after the resurrection. For some of us, we don't get healed until we're face-to-face with you, and that's ultimately the, the ultimate healing. So we want to uh, ask you, Father, for the grace to trust you, to realize we don't have enough information to second-guess you, ever, even though it's awfully tempting to at times, and help us just to steel ourselves to see everything in our lives, especially the difficult and the inexplicable stuff that happens to all of us, help us to see that against the background of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. So God demonstrates his love toward us, whether we're healed or not, whether we get the job we want or not, whether things happen like we want them to or not. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and rose again. I pray, Father, for anyone here this morning who's not, by your grace, seen and trusted Jesus Christ, repented, changed their mind about their sin, their self, their Savior, and put their faith and trust in Jesus alone, open their hearts to see and believe. And for the rest of us who are believers, help us to be encouraged that you're going to give us what we need to be what you want us to be. You haven't called me to be an apostle or Billy Graham. I don't have those prerogatives, those gifts, but you call us to be the best us we can be. And whether you're a young mother or a grandfather or a high school student or a college student, you've got us in a particular season of our lives, a particular time to be and do certain things. Help us to be excited about being and doing those things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.